listening to the Dr. Claude Kirshner Show. My name is Dr. Claude Kirshner, and we are here to serve organizational leaders and agile teams who strive for excellence and differentiation. I hope you enjoy the content. If you have any questions or would like some additional resources, please visit our website at www.archconsults.com. Enjoy. In my profession, in my career, more than anything, leading and understanding agile teams and organizations could be a significant competitive advantage for for leaders in a high degree. Part of the um, value proposition that I offer my clients in the consulting company is just that. We serve organizational leaders and agile teams who strive for excellence and differentiation. We do this by designing, implementing strategic entrepreneurship tactics for life cycle transitions. Unlike corporate consultants who are slow and not as effective and really expensive, we are affordable and work in the arena with the team and customer to make decisions and create value. So I put agile teams as a part of my value proposition that I'm delivering to customers. So you can see just how important I believe that learning how to manage agile teams is. All right. So the first question I want to ask for you to describe the kinds of needs, what people need at work and remember some of those lower level needs versus higher level needs uh, that people bring to an organization. Convenience needs and flexibility needs. What I mean by that is maybe your work is like five blocks away from your house or maybe your company allows you to work from home or maybe your company has a daycare policy for your kids and you could bring your kids to work. Like how, how important do you think some of those flexibility needs are for people to be motivated to work in their job? What's interesting in the next set of questions is going to be about personality. And then we'll talk about leader engagement. But the question that I just asked really pertained to the individual employee, like the person coming to work and their, their personal needs. And what's so important when we start talking about the manager is that we understand that each employee is motivated differently. So, for instance, if we had a person that, let's say I live in Miami and I had a job in Boca, obviously it's very inconvenient for me to get up to, not Boca, but West Palm Beach, to drive up there every single day. But a leader, a good manager would understand the sacrifices that I'm making to get there and they would potentially allow me more flexibility or they would potentially like get me a hotel every now and again to stay overnight. They can, if they're aware of individual needs on the team, they can find unique ways to motivate those people based on their needs. And way, like say 100 years ago in typical organizations, everybody was treated the same, that they were all just sort of, hey, we have 100 positions open, let's hire 100 people, and every single one of these 100 people get the same benefits, the same work hours, the same pay, the same everything. And it was almost easier as a manager back then, but now as things evolved and we become more of like an information-based economy and more intellectually driven in some of our services, managers have to learn the skill set of customizing their work and their incentives, their intrinsic and extrinsic rewards, and their positive and negative reinforcement to individual motivations. And sometimes the individual motivations may be outlandish or obscure. You know, you're not going to, I'm sorry, you can't come here dressed like a clown every day. I know you love clowns, but we, don't, we just don't do that here. And I understand how that motivates you, but that's I'm not going to give you that incentive. We have to still learn how to draw the line, but within the resources we have available as managers, we can be creative with how we motivate people. 
So I think that's the biggest takeaway from a leader and manager to that question is what are people's needs and why do we need to know that? And I guess it's really cool to understand. And I, I understood this maybe, I don't know, 10 years into my career that it's a really good idea. And it seems like it would be a waste of time, but it's not that every single person on your team goes through some level of personality test or self-assessment so that the manager gets an idea of how to manage them. And a lot of times they don't even know themselves what kind of personality they have. But if they take a test and there's no right or wrong answer, it will help us gauge where they sit on there. So it'll help us be able to manage them better. There's a great company called Smart Dollar. Uh, Dave Ramsey is a financial advisor and he's got a radio show that he plays all over the, he's a very popular guy. And I went to his building in Nashville. I got a tour of his building and I saw all of the desks at his building and every single person on every desk, every individual cubicle, had a little framed picture on their desk and it wasn't a picture it was it was words and the words were their disc profile it showed on every single person's desk where they fit on the personality scale so you could stop by their desk you can see them and then you could look at their personality oh you're like you're good at this or you're good at this it's it creates such a easier time getting along with people and understanding people if it's just if they can literally wear it on their shirt saying here's what I like here's what I don't like <laughs> but people struggle with articulating that and I think that's the point of these conversations is to figure that out yeah so how about some of those people that maybe they can't move up what do you think their needs are why would they stay at a job why would they go through the process of waking up every day and commuting to work if they really don't have the skill set to move up if a person wasn't making enough money to provide for their family, would that be would that be difficult for them to go to work every day? And then what's it like if you're making decent money and you can provide for your family, but when you go to work, you possibly don't have psychological needs met, meaning you're not you're not challenged, the tasks are easy and possibly you're not affirmed by your leader or your boss. What are some what are some issues that could arise if your psychological needs aren't met? Yeah, nobody wants to hang out with people who are, my perception is that the people don't like me. Even though my perception might be wrong, but if I'm constantly in this perceptual state of, wow, I don't know if these people like me, that's not really a fun place to be. So if we just talked about needs, individual needs, now we're going to talk about individual personalities. And individual personalities kind of coincide with, with needs in some kind of way. How might one's personality characteristics, such as introversion, extroversion, or openness to experience, how do those personality characteristics influence the needs a person brings to work? So let's talk about neuroticism. If a person is high on neuroticism, what are some of the needs that you think they're going to have at work? Somewhat anxious, unhappy, prone to negative emotions. As a person who's narcissistic, like say, you're high on narcissism and you go into a work environment, what are some things that you need from that work environment? Tendency towards unstable emotions. You're articulating a level of sensitivity from your peers and also your managers towards your somewhat anxious state. And I would agree. So that's sort of the interpersonal relationships that you'll have with your coworkers and also with your boss. So that's one element of what would be considered like the hygiene factors, like the safety needs. But there's another element about working conditions that in the environment that we can explore too. And I'll just give you some ideas and then we'll move on to another personality trait. But 
if you think about a person who's highly anxious or prone to negative emotion, uh, you could consider putting them in an individual office and allowing them like space to sort of vent and walk away from conversations so that they could maybe come out, engage, and if they would have like a anxious episode, then they can always go back in their office, catch their breath, and like kind of re- reframe their mind. Or also potentially putting them around other people who are not so anxious, like the people who are more less narcissistic, somebody who's more calm and maybe more spiritual or more grounded and doesn't respond emotionally. Because if you put two emotional and anxious people together that are trying to accomplish a goal, there's a chance that you could have some sparks fly. We know that there's good to people who have high neuroticism. The anxiety and the unhappiness usually stems from being difficult on oneself, having high goals, being um, extra ambitious, uh, being a little bit too self-aware. So people who tend to be overly narcissistic also tend to have sort of like savant-like talent. So, and again, I, I bring in role models and examples of people like Donald Trump and people like Elon Musk and like Bill Cosby. Like these are personalities that are like certain actors, like think about Tom Cruise. Like he had a major episode during COVID where he like, kind of like exploded on people as he was filming something. As you can see, I just named some people who have emotion and, and narcissistic tendencies that actually work out well for them. Okay, so high neuroticism, and I'll just briefly with, with people who are not as neurotic, you know, just they're cool, calm, and collected, and they're a little bit less, more emotionally stable, but they could tend to possibly be more content with the status quo and a little bit less ambitious at times. I kind of like openness, and it's sort of openness to experience. So somebody who's low on openness, think about it from two perspectives. One is the individual perspective, like you're coming into a work environment, and you're practical, you're conventional, and you prefer routine. What are some things that you expect or what are some things that you need from your from your work? The personality trait tends to be on a scale. So it's not one or the other. It's it's a scale. What I mean by that is if if it's one through ten on openness, somebody can score a four or they can score an eight. It's not like a ten or a one. So openness is imagination, feelings, actions, ideas, it's creativity, it's let's let's go for a boat ride randomly on a Tuesday because why not? You know, what are the needs of a person who's low on openness, a position like a travel agent or even or a tra- flight attendant or somebody that is having to travel for work, meaning like they don't want to get on a plane and leave their house and leave their routine every month to go to a city they've never been to before and meet people they don't know. They just don't really like that. They can do it. They just wouldn't prefer it. It, it wouldn't meet their needs. And I think that's the point of this motivation and understanding how personality and needs sort of coincide. How about conscientiousness? This is a really important one. A person who's high on conscientiousness, what are some of the needs that they're going to have at work? A person that is then conscientious, what kind of tasks would you assign them? So now think about it from a managerial way. Would Would they be managers? Would they be individual contributors? Would they be leaders? Would they be accountants would they like what what kind of roles would they play managers are the ones who are the most conscientious like a good manager tends to be more conscientious than not so good managers whereas leadership is a little bit different leaders uh tend to be conscientious to a degree 
but not nearly as much as bona fide managers. Looking at the other extreme, I think it's interesting that if you had somebody that's high in conscientiousness come to work and was not challenged or didn't have enough to do, which is interesting, you think they would like that, but they don't like that. The conscientious people need to be able to feel as if they're getting things done and that people depend on them. So that's a key takeaway too, is that you can find somebody who's high on conscientiousness, which you and I agree is like a great task, you know, to some degree. But if managers can't keep them involved in tasks and assign them tasks appropriately to ensure that they're somewhat challenged and that they can apply their hard work and propensity, then we got a problem. Like they're just not going to be happy. So that's another thing too. And, and I would think that people who are conscientious typically got decent grades in school and were able to set their mind to something and accomplish goals. So therefore, they're confident to, to a degree as well. They're not going to want to work for people who don't give them things that demonstrate their skills. And then if you, if you roll that through with the low score on openness, you would say, all right, well, we can't, we can't have this person sit in on brainstorming sessions all day long. And we certainly can't have this person working on like new innovative projects because they're just not good at that. So we have to assign them tasks that would fit their, their personality type. And then the last one we talked about was a person that's high on narcissism. They, they really wouldn't be good around a lot of conflict or they wouldn't be good around uncertain or um, chaotic situations often. Like they might be good at that every once in a while, but putting them in that chaotic state of uncertainty and potential conflict is going to set them off emotionally too much. What things do you do just because they're simply enjoyable and fun? And what does that give you? What if I said, I want you to go to the beach this week if you go to the beach, I'll give you 50 bucks. Would that make you want to go to the beach even more? Okay, so if you're a manager, it'd be pretty stupid to have to, to pay you to go to the beach, wouldn't it? Because you already enjoy it. It's fun to you. Why would I pay you for that? If I'm a manager and I want you to accomplish and perform well, and I knew that if you were able to go to the beach at like 2 o'clock every day and go for a run, that that would make you really happy. I would allow you to do that. Like, hey, you can leave work at 2 o'clock. But then I would also say that there's certain levels of expected output that I would need from you between the hours of 8 and 2. I, I can help you be more flexible with your desire to, ha to live happy and calm and peaceful um, with your adventures at the beach and understand that and acknowledge that and say, wow, that's amazing. We're segueing into a conversation about uh, teams and managing teams. It's about team dynamics, team size, team launch, team design. And the, the importance of understanding this kind of stuff as a manager and as a leader. Here's what's going to happen. I am going to have to fix you, manage you. Management. Jim, what is that called? Microgement. Boom. Yes. You think it has something to do with that incentive program? People aren't stupid. You know, and, and I, I think that the pun in the, the joke of it is that certain managers, I mean, we all they all want people to produce more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in incentivizing people and in motivating people, it becomes it becomes silly to try to do certain things that get them to, to work hard or whatever. And, and it's strictly based on extrinsic reward, which this guy clearly had no idea how to add purpose and mission and, and value systems into what they're doing. And it, it kind of shows the, the goofiness of what those extrinsic rewards mean. And also jokingly put into 
play the limited resources that organizations have to give extrinsic rewards. Like, hey, we can't give you any more money, but we're going to give you this tablecloth. How often do companies do that? They're like, oh, we can't give you any more money, but you can have this badge that says you're a great employee. Like, who who cares? And I don't want that. And and there's there's a terminology that called balance. And valence is the degree to which people actually value a particular reward, meaning you can give a person a million dollars and they do not have valence towards money. They just have no motive. Money doesn't motivate them. Maybe they already have a ton of money and giving them more doesn't mean anything. So depending on an individual's balance towards a reward, it demonstrates to the manager what it is that that person values more. This guy sat in the meeting and obviously he had a conversation with 20 people and everybody was going to be rewarded with the same box of toys or whatever he had, which is stupid. I mean, it's silly. And obviously the box of toys meant nothing to them. And what really meant something to them is embarrassing their manager and making him tattoo his butt. So that's it's kind of funny that he actually was willing to go through with that, um, considering it was motivating his team. And it also goes to show just how far, jokingly, managers will go to get their team to work hard. And it's, it's kind of true. And they, they have to work together often as a team. It's a good thing to do, and it's also something that managers need to take into consideration when they design and launch teams and put teams to work. The, the product of a team usually, if not always, can produce more than an individual. So if I was to do a big project that was meaningful, like try to paint my house and I had this big house, it would make much more sense for me to get two other people to do it with me because the, the amount of time, energy, and effort spent with three people is much less than how much time, energy, and effort it would take me to paint the house by myself because you can coordinate tasks. You can assign roles. You could uh, work together. Like if one person's holding the ladder and if you needed to do some dangerous work up on top, you really can't. You can't paint the house by it. You could risk dying if you did it by yourself. So there's obviously a ton of advantages if you think about preparing the house story of working with the team. So coordination, information sharing, and exchange of materials. These two things, these three things are sound simple, but coordination amongst team members can be challenging. Information sharing, as we know, can be challenging. And exchange of materials can be challenging. It's a lot. So if you can imagine having bigger teams and leading bigger teams as a manager, it takes a lot of effort to ensure that these teams are successful. Higher productivity, quality improvement, greater flexibility and speed, flatter management structure. Let's talk about that for a second. What's important to understand flatter structure, it means that there's less of a hierarchy. And with teams, what happens is there's usually like, maybe there's a leader role in a team or a supervisor role in a team, but you're really operating as a unit. A lot of times those units can make decisions and are autonomous in themselves. If you were to say, let's run with a painting example. In the morning, you would have four teams of, of painters. Once those teams of painters are dispatched to go work on their houses throughout the day, during the day, they, they don't, they're their own bosses, meaning they decide how they're going to execute on this project. They have the resources. They have the painting materials. They have the blessing to go and paint this house. How it gets done is really up to them. Versus a hierarchical structure within a team is there's like a manager on site and then there's like a site superintendent and then there's like three laborers where the manager sort of sits there and does nothing and tells people what to do. The superintendent sort of maybe helps here and there and the laborers are the ones doing all the work. Again, that would be more of a hierarchical structure in a company. A team doesn't really operate like that. A team usually comes together collectively to achieve a common goal as opposed to having a lot of bureaucracy within the team. 
that's sort of what it means by a flatter management structure. Increased employee involvement and satisfaction. I'm sure you can see how that works and lower turnover. That's if the team is working well and is motivated. Okay. So if you would have the divergent view of a healthy team, think about an unhealthy team or a toxic team and think about having to operate within and I'll just kind of lay this out for a second. Teams are typically designed between four and 12. Ideal teams are between uh, four and six. So that's a good team size. Say you have five people and the team is unhealthy. They don't communicate. They don't share resources. It's not fun. If that's the case, you, you would almost quicker leave work. You would almost quicker not want to be a part of that company. Even if the CEO and the vice president and the human resource person are great, it doesn't matter because your team sucks and it's annoying. Your team isn't fun. It, you would want to work on a different team. So I'll, I'll use my wife as an example. She used to work in development, which is the foundations department of this hospital at Baptist Hospital in South Florida. And she sort of enjoyed what she did. And she was capable of doing a good job raising money. And, and she was on this team. And it was a team of about eight or nine different people that were doing similar activities to herself. And the team had a leader. And there were certain people on the team that may have been doing it longer than others, but the leader was the leader, and then everybody else was sort of on the same level. So you had a leader and seven people sort of on the same level, all with a similar mission, similar goal. But she had a, a woman on her team that was her friend and then betrayed her, like backstabbed her, talked bad about her, started gossiping about her for whatever reason. So every single then they had a falling out. They had like a contentious conversation, and she no longer was a friend of this person. But the person was still on her team at work. So she had to interact and see this person often. She had to see her face on Zoom. She had to like call her every once in a while to get information. And she really didn't like it. You know, she, the whole, everything I mentioned about her being good at it and her enjoying it and her having a common mission and a common goal was completely undermined by the fact that she no longer enjoyed working with this person. So you can tell just how quickly the environment of a team can shift if there's some divergent views or some conflict that is unsettling amongst the team members. And it's a leader's job in order to ensure that that stuff comes about. So we'll talk about that a little bit later. But the point of me sharing that story is that you can see how uh, a team can be very good for an organization if managed well. And also how these teams, these smaller units of common goal teams could potentially be very difficult for certain people to absorb and be a part of. So a team is a unit of two or more people who interact and coordinate their work to accomplish a shared goal or purpose. Really four different kinds of teams. And a, a functional team, so it, not to be overly academic with these terms, but a functional team would be like a human resources department or an accounting department or sales department. A functional team is a perpetual group that the, the, the function of the team operates through eternity. So as long as this company exists, it's going to have an accounting department. Whether or not that accounting department has separate micro teams doesn't matter. Your team is meant to perform a goal of accounting. And the team may have 12 people, six people, whatever. So that's a functional team. It's meant to perform one particular duty within an organization perpetually versus cross-departmental team coordinates across organizational boundaries for change projects. Leader gives up some powers, special purpose team, problem solving teams. So you have this accounting department, you have this HR department, you have the sales department. All of a sudden, you have this new company that's opening up in Japan, and you need to go to Japan and open up this new company. You're going to take a person from accounting, you're going to take a person from sales, a person from um, project management or whatever, human resources, and you're going to put them together temporarily as a team to go do this particular job. So can you see the difference between how one functional team is different than a cross-departmental team? 
if you think about the army and special forces, you'll get an idea of this as well. So you can say that I'm on the, I'm in the military uh, air division. So the air division is a functional team. We're all in the air division together. But within the air division, there's going to be a large amount of these missions that people need to be sent on. So they're going to take people from the air division in the army. They're going to take people from special forces in the Marines. And they're going to take people from the Navy SEALs in the Navy. And they're going to group them together for a mission. So that group, even though they're part of a larger functional team, is now a part of a cross-departmentalized team or an agile team or a self-directed team in order to accomplish a particular mission. So the, the reason why I'm elaborating this to a degree, and, and it's very important to understand, when you manage functional teams versus when you manage these dynamic cross-departmental teams, self-directed teams, or agile teams, it's totally different. The former, the functional team, is traditional leadership. Hierarchy, structure, routine, procedure, this kind of stuff. Versus team leadership. We're moving away from this conversation, this functional, business-minded, managerial, hierarchical, procedural type of leadership to, all right, what is the mission? What is the task? What are the goals? And what kinds of people do we need to bring together in order to best accomplish this goal? So it, it's a perfect example is like a relay team on the swim team. And it's a perfect example. Like everybody's on the swim team. That's great. You're on a functional team within a university. Awesome. Swim team. Okay. Within the swim team, we got to put a, a number one. I don't know what they call like a, the star relay team that is going to be the best swimmers we have. And we got to have a specialist in butterfly, a specialist in backstroke, a specialist in freestyle, and a specialist in they have a specialist in all of those categories, and we're putting them together temporarily in order to accomplish a goal of winning this one particular event. As the functional team, as a, the coach of that functional team, of the entire swim team, you're obviously going to structure how you operate your team differently than how you treat this relay, this, this special force relay team, these individuals who are now coming together temporarily to win a relay race. You're going to talk to them different. You're probably going to meet with them different. You're probably going to strategize with them different. You're probably going to motivate them different. So that's the point that leading these different types of teams are, it's important to understand the difference. So an agile team is a small team focused on one element of the large project, a relay race within a meet. And it is, it has complete responsibility along with all needed member expertise to produce a product or service. Agile teams have the following characteristics, small in size, typically made up of three to six people. We talked about that composed of employees from different functional areas, butterfly, breaststroke, freestyle and backstroke focus on building solutions for distinct, small and manageable components of larger, complex problems that are integrated into the comprehensive whole. So moving away from the swimming example, because you can see how that puts it into practice and moving more towards an organizational example. Uh, let's let's look at this example they had to double in sales at the office. So he brought a group of people together around a temporary goal of increasing in the next 12 months by X amount. So that that team is really an agile team. We're doing things a little bit differently temporarily for a year. And then after a year, when we accomplish this goal, we're sort of going to go back to the original methods. And it's a little less agile than the swim team example that I mentioned, but you can get the point that it's bringing, bringing a smaller unit together to accomplish a goal. And that's mostly what we're going to talk about in this chapter because a lot of times managers, when they step into a managerial situation or leadership situation, they usually the functional structure, the, the way in which the company runs is, is a big long-term project. It's a, it's a big conversation. But mo more importantly, on a granular level, it's how do we get these smaller agile teams to accomplish goals? It's not the big 
who eat the small. It's the fast who eat the slow. Speed as strategy. That's the name of the article. Is that being quick, being flexible, being able to respond to customer needs in a very dynamic way is usually looked at in business as the best approach. So let's look at an example of um, companies who have done that really well. Let's think about these grocery shoppers like Instacart. Remember when the pandemic first hit? Instacart really wasn't much of a thing. But the leaders at Instacart knew that this was going to be a huge benefit to their business. So they were able to invest in technology. They were able to start doing marketing. They were able to leverage the environmental needs of this particular boom and in interest. And in order to do that, they needed to spread out and, and group in smaller fashions and have clear attainable goals by smaller teams. They can't just slowly respond to these needs. The other example I use often is our response to hurricanes at the company that that we own uh, with the pool landscaping construction company is when a hurricane would hit, our entire functional structure was, it was good because it was there, but it, it had to get rattled. It had to get shaken. We had to take traditional accounting work and traditional sales work and traditional operations work, and we had to restructure our entire team to accomplish smaller tasks. So we would sub-assign teams to geographies. We would say, okay, you're going to be focused on this particular geography, and this team of five people is tasked to go and like do one-time cleanups because yards are a mess. And all you had to do was one-time cleanups. And we did that for like two months with that one particular team. And then obviously once that one-time cleanup hurricane disaster control deal was done with, then we would they would go back to their original jobs, like whether it be account manager, whether it be a an accounting uh, job or a sales job, whatever it was, their traditional jobs are shaken up temporarily because of the environmental need. So this is so important. And I, I'm stressing this point because in my profession, in my career, more than anything, leading and understanding agile teams and organizations could be a, a significant competitive advantage for, for leaders in a high degree. Part of the um, value proposition that I offer my clients in the consulting company is just that. We serve organizational leaders and agile teams who strive for excellence and differentiation. We do this by designing, implementing strategic entrepreneurship tactics for life cycle transitions. Unlike corporate consultants who are slow and not as effective and really expensive, we are affordable and working in the arena with the team and customer to make decisions and create value. So I put agile teams as a part of my value proposition that I'm delivering to customers. So you can see just how important I believe that learning how to manage agile teams is. Typically, when I talk about small teams, I talk about two things, design and launch. A compelling purpose, clear objectives, and explicit metrics basically means they have to have a goal. If you launch a team and a relay team in a particular swim meet, the goal is to beat that school because that school was talking schmack on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or whatever social media platform and whether or not we win the relay race doesn't matter we have to beat that team and obviously if you show some of your relay team racers the video of them taunting you and talking schmack prior to the race it's going to compel them to want to swim harder would you agree yeah so that is a very basic way to explain a compelling purpose beat that team i don't know what that team is that your arch rival or whatever team is talking smack, that's all we care about here, which is different than, hey, we're looking to qualify for the whatever finals next season. I, I, like some 
overarching goal of just getting a particular time or maybe not losing or some other purpose that isn't as compelling. I'm trying to draw a distinct contrast between what's compelling and what's not compelling. So it's important to understand how to incentivize a team with a launch. Hey, this is important. Let me tell you why. Go do it. It motivates the team and it gets them to function together in a much more collaborative way. You'll, there'll be less conflict because there's a common goal as opposed to fighting amongst one another. Clear objective explicitment, diversity in skills and unambiguous roles with streamlined team size, decision authority over how to achieve goals and psychological safety. So I'm going to unpack a few of these just for a second. How, what is the ideal team size? Harvard Business Review, and this is a good number to remember because it's an obscure number, is 4.7 is the best team size. I know it's kind of odd because a point seven, what the heck is that? My answer to that question would be between four and six. That's what I would say is the ideal team size. Okay, let's talk about unambiguous roles. If you're on a team of people, and let's just say that relay team is the case, and a coach got you all together to swim a relay race but didn't tell you what stroke you were going to swim, and you had no information as to who's going to swim what stroke, Obviously, you guys would probably know because you would know what you're best at. But what if what if that was unclear? Would that be difficult? So here's the deal with roles. They need to be clear and they need to be defined most of the time. And the reason why they need to be clear and need to be defined is because people need to know what am I supposed to do. And if you so if you ever did a Habitat for Humanity project, you, you go to this house and you're assigned a role. You guys are going to go inside and paint. You guys are going to stay outside and do landscaping, and you guys over here are going to, you know, clean up the dirt off the side of the house. Okay, great. Like, now I know what I'm supposed to do. Now imagine going to a Habitat for Humanity with no leadership, and you don't know what you're supposed to do. Obviously, you're going to gravitate towards something, but it's unclear. It's ambiguous. You're not really sure if this is what you're supposed to be doing. So when we design teams, when we launch teams, and when we put them together between four to six people, we have to make sure, we don't have to say, hey, you're going to do this, you're going to do this, you're going to do this. There's a way in which you can go about it to say, okay, here are the jobs that we need to get done. Who would like to do what? Or, hey, what role do you think you should play based on your skills, talents, whatever? So, But as long as the manager understands that when people don't have roles and roles are ambiguous, there's a problem, there's a slowdown, there's a conflict that is arising when people don't have roles. That's very important. So we, we understand size, we understand roles, which have to do with skills as well. Decision authority over how to achieve goals. Assigning some level of, of decision authority is important. And again, there's always two, two opposites here. If I was to be the team leader, let's just say, and I was on a team of five people and I was the leader and I had to felt as if I needed to oversee everybody's job, that could be seen as ineffective and demotivating to the team. As opposed to you have a bunch of specialists together and maybe you have a person who's a little bit more senior than others. That if God forbid something was to go wrong, they would assume some level of leadership. And that's sort of known throughout the group. But the leader is capable of putting, is really just capable of allowing people to flourish in their own skills and roles. So think about a special forces team that is tasked with going on a mission to Afghanistan to alleviate terrorist unit. And you, you obviously are going to have a team leader, like a mission leader. But at the end of the day, there's going to be a guy that does comms. There's going to be a guy that does the assault weapon. There's going to be a guy that, that you know does the scouting, whatever that looks like. So when it's time for that to be performed, 
that individual who does comms takes on the leadership. So leadership fluctuates throughout the mission. I, I draw that out because I do believe that if you assign authority within a smaller team, you have to do it in a cautious way and that the leader has to understand that it's not about them and, and their leadership and their authority. It's about the team accomplishing the goals. So that's decision authority over how to achieve goals. And then psychological safety, just feeling safe, feeling welcome, feeling appreciated, not feeling like people are gossiping about you, feelings if you're supposed to be here, and getting affirmed in some way by the group and crowd, I think is really important. If I say that I'm forming a team, what does that look like? We don't have to overcomplicate it. It's forming. It's, <laughs> it is what it is. Like, hey, we're bringing a few people together to, to do something. If you're forming a group of friends to go out and go dancing, that's what you're doing. You're, you're forming. So that's all that is. It's just bringing people together is forming. So when people do come together and think about when they come together for the first time, there tends to be a developmental stage of how the team develops, you know, over time. So when you come together, it's you and say, say you were about to do a, like a all-star race. You and the best swimmers are going to do a relay race together. So if there's three swimmers that that are going to be put on your team, you have no idea who they are. It could be men or women. Just for the sake of the example, when you guys come together for the first time, you're forming. Okay, wow, nice to meet you, nice to meet you, nice to meet you. So if you can imagine, you're all talented people, you all have a goal of winning the all-star race, but you've never met before. Great, we're at the forming stage. Typically what happens after the forming stage, the storming phase is filled with potential disagreement or conflict. Laying out that example of the swimmers, you might hear somebody say something that's adverse or racially discriminating that you've never met these people before and you're going to say whoa what was that i don't i don't like how you speak to people like that because you've never met them and you're around them for the first time and there's going to be a level of conflict and disagreement that's what happens when teams are brought together once that conflict and disagreement you get through that process and i'm sure you can see how that happens within teams you get into something called norming this stage is very important to understand for life And I say this because every single day I struggle with people who don't understand the norms. And you have a team of people. You're progressing through a path. You're grateful for what the norms that you've created. And all of a sudden, here comes some bonehead onto your team being like an idiot. He doesn't understand the norms of your team. He doesn't understand the norms of your culture. He doesn't understand the norms of whatever. So when a new person comes into an environment, they too have to go through this level of of stage development. They have to learn the norms. They have to develop the norms or they have to be congruent with the norms that are already existing. And then certainly for new teams that are formed, they develop their own norms. After a certain amount of time, you and your your brothers, sisters, but your cousins come together and you know that like Johnny sits in that seat for dinner and Jill sits over here for dinner and, you know, Becky doesn't like orange juice and Joey likes chocolate chip cookies. Sort of figure that out over time. So that's what norming is. That's the stage of, of norming. And like, because I have this grandmom who is, she was a bit, how do I describe it? A bit aggressive with her communication. <laughs> she would say things sometimes that were sort of outlandish because she was overly confident. She would just say something outlandish. And me and my cousins were used to that. We were, we understood the norms of our grandma and we would laugh. Grandma would like, mama, what do you think? Why is that the case? But when we bring new people into the environment, when we invite friends over and grandmom starts acting like that, they're like, whoa, you know, what, what was that? 
I, I like orange, and why are you calling me egotistical? So they would have to figure out the forms of of how we do things. And so now we're, we formed, then we stormed, we had some conflict, then we figured out the norm. Once we figure out the norms, that's when we're finally at this performance stage where we can start to achieve goals. But unless we make it through the forming, storming, and norming, we won't get to the performing stage. So when you're talking about teams, you hopefully are talking about team performance, team storming, or team norming, or team forming. So the goal is to get through forming, storming, and norming so that you can perform. And good managers understand the forming, storming, norming phases as opportunities to make the team better. Okay, so that this is uh, something you'll see often in your life. So I figured I would draw it out a little bit. What is what does team cohesiveness mean to you? Yeah, is cohesiveness important? It tends to be the case that cohesiveness is always associated with a good thing. Cohesiveness should usually be a goal. So cohesiveness is the extent to which members are attracted to the team and motivated to remain in it. Determinants of cohesiveness, these are big deals. If you think about cohesiveness as the outcome variable, like if the goal is to get to cohesiveness, what a manager needs to do is have healthy team interactions, have shared goals, have personal attraction to the team, presence of competition and team success. We'll talk about competition for a second. Competition, a bit of competition amongst teams within the same company. So say you have three different sales teams and they're, they're led differently because they're agile teams within one company. And there is a healthy competition amongst the teams to be the best selling team that year. So if those teams had some level of healthy competition with one another, it drives them to perform. And it's always funny when I do these workshops and I put people in teams and I ask them to come up with a team name, all of a sudden they have this like cohesive competitive spirit about them. Ten minutes prior, before I put them into groups and gave them team names, they, they weren't competing with one another. So they had no desire to like win or perform because they were a bunch of individuals. But the moment you put them into a team and you, you give them a name, all of a sudden they're looking across the room at the other team that has a name and they're saying, we're going to beat you. You know, you're not as good as us. It's crazy how that happens, but that's actually a good thing. So if you can imagine a, a group of people that you hang out with, if they're cohesive, what are some things that they, you experience in their presence? And maybe they finish each other's sentences too, right? What if, what if one of them has a grandma that passes away and you would consider that friend group to be cohesive? What would be some behaviors that you would see amongst that friend group? If you have a friend, whose grandma passed away, you're loyal to them to the extent that you will call them, you will tell them you're sorry, that you, you love them, you're there for them, and that you would likely go to the funeral. Those are behaviors that you would find in cohesive friend groups, that they're capable of supporting one another during difficult times. And that's really what high morale means, is, is, is exuding those kinds of behaviors in a cohesive way. And for instance, if vice versa, if you lost your grandma and you had a tight group of friends and not a single person reached out to you and, and nobody came to the funeral, you wouldn't feel as if your friend group is cohesive. You certainly wouldn't feel like they're loyal. So the same thing can apply to work groups as well, that they, they talk amongst each other. They're friendly. They, they have relationship maintenance. They, they, they care about reaching out to each other and talking to each other about certain things. They're loyal. They participate in decisions and activities. That's what that's what good cohesive teams do. And then if you had that cohesive team or friend circle or, or work, you usually are more productive. You have more satisfaction amongst the different members. You have energy and creativity. And also, 
I mean, this is an example of what can decrease performance. That I, this is, again, it's so interesting how everything I just mentioned, all of that good of, yeah, 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 we're together with cohesive. There's a portion of that that could be bad because you can experience the team almost turns into this animal of, of, of itself. Like if you, I use this example of the Power Rangers that come together and our powers combined, you know, you make this big animal, literally, they come together and they make this big dinosaur, if you've ever seen the Power Rangers. That dinosaur is an entity in itself. What happens when people come together and they're so cohesive is sometimes they don't challenge one another's thoughts. They don't have independent thought, which is also important. And they fall victim to something called groupthink which is a tendency of people in a cohesive group to suppress contrary opinions. So you go to a friend group and you guys all, uh, most of you want to go dancing at Shirley's tonight and you don't want to go dancing at Shirley's. You would rather sit home and do nothing and hang out and watch a movie with your friends. But because friend number one, two, three, and four all said, yeah, let's go to Shirley's. You just say, okay, let's go to Shirley's. You don't, you don't ever dissent. You don't ever disagree. And that is what groupthink is. And we want to avoid that sometimes because you should be able to say, you know what? No, I don't want to go to Shirley's. I'd rather stay home and watch a movie. And once you voice that descending opinion in a group, usually other people sort of feel the same way too. It's just that you said it. So when you're hanging out with your group of friends and you really truly believe something, and you suppress that belief because you just kind of want to go along with the group, you're succumbing to groupthink. But if you don't suppress that belief and you, in a healthy way, say, you know what, I disagree, find out, see what happens. And you'll be surprised that one or two other friends might actually disagree too. And you're the one who countered this this bias, this bad thing called groupthink. It's time to make a decision. Bob, take off your engineer's hat and put on your management hat. Does anyone in the loop have a different position? The video was meant to demonstrate a significant problem with working in teams that are experiencing groupthink. And what happened is that that shuttle blew up. People died. The person who didn't speak, the guy who self-censored, actually committed suicide a couple years later. So it's it's a drastic example that every single person that ever teaches and talks about groupthink will bring up forever because it could have been prevented by a leader of that group if they just allowed dissenting opinions to come about. And so what my goal is for you to see and start to notice and apply in your own social circles is to notice when maybe other people don't agree. <laughs> and if you don't agree yourself and to see the tendency of people just to come to some level of consensus very quickly, as opposed to allowing disagreement to bring about a better decision so often you know prior to marrying my wife we had a lot of consensus because we didn't have any kids together it was very easy to make decisions we were dating we we're in this like rose colored glasses phase of our life and we would agree i'm like oh let's go get pizza let's go let's go watch a movie of course of course of course now that we have kids and more responsibility and that we've been married for four years we don't always agree on what to do, how to do it, when to do it. And it's actually a good thing because what happens is we can both get what we want if we make compromises and whatnot, but we do it in a healthy way. There's healthy disagreement. And if I, if for whatever reason, like I just agreed with everything she said, similar to the way that we did when we first started dating, I would, wouldn't be happy because I wouldn't be getting what I want. I would just be allowing her to make all these decisions and falling victim to groupthink between her and I. So again, I'm just trying to draw out some stories and examples of, of it's very important to understand 
if you bring a team together, what are some, when you think about individual competencies, competencies, a synonym of competencies is skill. So a team has skills, a team has competencies, and the skills of a team that are important are goal setting and performance management, planning and coordination, collaboration and problem solving, communication and conflict resolution. We talked about the importance of member roles. There's typically two different types of roles within a team, and there's like micro roles within them. If you have a person that's more task-focused, remember when we talked a lot about initiating structure versus consideration and being more task-focused versus relationship-focused, this also falls true teams as well. So you have a task role, initiate ideas, give opinions, seek information, summarize, and energize. And then you have a social-emotional role, which is encourage, harmonize, reduce tension, follow, Compromise. So even in my teaching style, you'll see that there are times in the task aspect of my teaching, it's about getting through the rest of this chapter so that we can move on. But then, of course, you pause and the role that is encouraging, harmonizing, reduce tension, follow and compromise is also important that we don't take ourselves so seriously, that we notice some people on the team that could be dragging, that we that we lift them up. So good managers are good at both of these. They're good at task and they're good at socio-emotional. And I think that's the key takeaway is that there are these two different roles. And just like initiating structure and consideration, it's important for in, in a smaller team to have the task role and the socio-emotional role as well. So conventional is, is you, you're in the same work environment. You meet at you know this particular office building and you guys work together every day. Virtual remote is what you and I are doing right now. And of course, global is you're working with a person from Japan or a different country and you're having to accomplish tasks together. With conventional, they're together. With virtual, they're scattered. And globally, they're widely scattered. Communication. Conventional is more face-to-face, which is a richer form of communication. And then the virtual and global is mediated by some level of technology, device, phone, whatever that looks like. Cool. So member culture is important. Culture is meaning like uh, different nations and different religious thoughts and values and systems and beliefs. Like different cultures obviously play into the fact that you're I'm from the United States and I'm working globally with a person from Japan, that's going to be a challenge. And so it looks like as these start to go down, that the easiest team to manage for a leader is a conventional team. The second hardest is a virtual team. And the third hardest is a global team. And I think the answer to that, well, well, why? You should ask, well, why is it harder? And obviously, I think the answer begs the fact of communication. We talked about how important communication is as a leader. And if you can tell that, I'm sure it's pretty obvious that communicating with people from different countries virtually is a lot more difficult than going into the office on Monday and seeing the person that you work with. So I think that communication is a big part of that. Skills of a successful virtual team, selects the right team members, starts off right, uses technology to build relationships, agrees on ground rules. So you notice when we first came together virtually that I sort of do it intentionally, but at the same time, if you and I were to come together physically, we would probably spend the first 10 minutes just hanging out you know hey how's it going what's up and we would sort of posture getting ready everybody does that when they come together physically they say hey, how you doing they shake hands they sit down they pat each other in the back they laugh they sort of have some level of like coming together prior to a task or performance so if that's the case in the conventional teams what's important that is when you meet with people virtually that you allow people to do the same thing, that we have time to say hello, to chill, to hang out. How you doing? How'd you sleep? What's up? So that will help managing a virtual team. I thought that was a cool takeaway. Uh, free rider is the same as social loafing and the dilemma of putting teams together. Common dysfunctions of a team. Patrick Lancioni wrote a great book called The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. 
lack of trust, fear of conflict, lack of commitment, avoidance of accountability, and inattention to results. In lack of trust environment, the attitudes and behavior of people don't feel safe or reveal mistakes, share, share concerns, or express ideas. Fear of conflict, people go along with others for the sake of harmony, don't express conflicting opinions. And that's what we talked about groupthink. Uh, lack of commitment. People can't truly commit to decisions because they haven't contributed their true opinions and ideas. Avoidance of accountability. People don't accept responsibility for outcomes. Engage in finger pointing when things go wrong. In attention to results, members put personal ambition of the needs of their individual departments ahead of collective results. I have something to say about all of these, but for the sake of time, just know that these dysfunctions can creep into the team very quickly. I painted the example of my wife on her foundations team, and there was a lady who she dissented with that she then had to work with. That's a lack of trust problem. And it's also sort of an, uh, it's a fear of conflict that she wasn't able to express to her leader that she doesn't want to work with that person anymore, or that person betrayed her on a personal level. It, it, it's a real thing. And these dysfunctions of a team, this guy, again, Patrick Lentzman, wrote a whole book on it, it is unbelievable how many dysfunctions that are present in teams without leaders even knowing it. So it's really important that leaders are not naive towards these propensities of dysfunction. So I have a problem with another person. I They uh, potentially maybe betrayed me or they acted in the type of way that was disheartening towards me. And me and that other person have conflict. So you as the manager have to help us get rid of this conflict or work through the conflict so that we can continue to perform. Prepare yourself for understanding conflict as a leader and how to manage conflict as a leader. So conflict is a good thing. Conflict is okay within teams. Conflict happens. Anytime you bring people together around a complicated goal, there's going to be a level of conflict, especially if they're high performers. The, the definition of conflict is antagonistic interaction in which one party attempts to thwart the intentions or goals of another. That is what conflict is. There's two different types of conflict. Same thing with the roles of the team. You have the task role and you have the social emotional role. There are conflicts around task and there are conflicts around relationship. Again, this is why managers need to be good at both of them. So we're going to have a task conflict that I'm struggling with with a team member. And then we're going to have a relationship conflict that I'm struggling with the team member and you're going to have to help me through this conflict and potentially mediate it between me and this other person on the team. So task conflict is disagreement among goals to be achieved or the content of the task to be performed and relationship conflict is personal incapability that creates tension and feelings of personal animosity among people. Too much conflict is too much conflict. It's never really good <laughs> to have too much conflict. No conflict is also a bad thing. It's because you don't have dissenting opinions, and we just talked about groupthink, and people should have healthy conflict. So having a moderate level of conflict, as you can see, with team performance is a good thing. When it's moderate, team performance is high, that, that circle up there. When team performance is low is when conflict is too high, and when team performance is low is when there is no conflict. So that kind of gives you an idea that both low and, and high conflict are, are bad. Causes of conflict, competition for resources, different goals, lack of clear roles and responsibilities. So competition of resources is very similar to uh, like the office scene where they don't have any raises to give people, but they're still needing to perform. If that was a more realistic situation that only certain people could get a prize, obviously there's going to be a competition to, to attain a resource. And because there's not a lot of resources to accomplish goals, it automatically drives conflict. Let me see if I can phrase that a little bit more practical so you can understand. 
my wife and I want to buy a house. We would like to, because our, our, our fat bigger and we live in a condominium. We have two bedrooms and one bathroom. And unfortunately in Miami, houses are, decent houses in decent neighborhoods are $800,000. They're very, very expensive. So we don't have $800,000 right now to spend on a house. So my wife wants a house. We don't have the resources. So naturally there's a level of conflict, right? Because we want something and we can't get it yeah. because we don't have enough resources. So that's a more practical example for you to understand that same type of conflict happens within organizations as well. And then, of course, here's another conflict that is very similar is that my goal isn't to buy a house. My goal is to, let's say, have another baby. Like that's what's most important to me. And her goal is to buy a house. So we have different goals. So therefore, we're going to have conflict. Lack of clear roles and responsibilities. It's very hard when you go to a Habitat for Humanity house and you, you, you don't know what you're supposed to do. And let's just say that you finally figure out that what you're supposed to do is plant trees and that there's a person on your team that comes out to plant trees and is dressed like a, um, like, like they're going to a, a, a ball, like a wedding or something. And you're like, why are you dressed like that? You can't. Oh, well, I thought I was coming out here to like give a presentation. Well, it, it's annoying. It's, it, there's conflict because there's not a clear role and responsibility. And clearly you can tell that this person's going to be useless because they don't get it. So that's a cause of conflict as well. It, it's, it's obvious, right? But to be able to name these things and when you see conflict happen in person, you can say, Oh, wow, it's because of that. So here, here's a, a fun one to think about how people handle conflict. One is dominating, one is collaborating, one is avoiding, and another one is accommodating. And one is compromising. These are basic words, and because they're all together, they sound similar, but let's unpack each one of them. Dominating is if my wife wanted to buy a house, and she decided that she was going to dominate me, she would threaten me, or she would coerce me into to making the decision, or she would just leave. You know what I mean? She would just say, okay. You don't want to buy a house. I'm going to go buy a house myself and you can stay here if you want to. So that's a dominating way of looking at it. Collaborating way, which is actually the best way, is saying, okay, you want this. I want that. Let's figure out a way to work together to achieve a goal. So that's collaboration. It's not my way. It's our way. That's actually the most beneficial way of doing it. Another way to do it is just to avoid it. If somebody wants something, they have conflict, they have a disagreement, they have a, a strong opinion, and you just don't address it. You just ignore it. You just don't engage in the conversation, and you just avoid it. And whatever they do, they do. It doesn't matter. And that's avoiding conflict. And sometimes it's a decent strategy, especially when, say, a person's complaining about something stupid, like they don't like where they park or they're not happy about the temperature in the office building. Like, it's, Thank you for voicing that opinion, and it's really cool. But I don't need to address that. Like, it's not something that I'm going to spend much energy and time on is listening to your complaints about the parking and the temperature. So that would be an example of why, where avoiding conflict is, is decent. If that, if that complaining and that gossiping and that ridiculing of temperature and parking grows to the extent where it becomes destructive to the team environment, that's where a manager should probably step in and, and either dominate or collaborate or compromise, depending on what their deal is. Another way to do it is is accommodating. Accommodating is really saying, all right, so my wife wants a house and she wants to go buy a house. And I say, well, all right, let's do it. Like, even though I don't want it, even though I'm not in agreement, she brought up some level of conflict. I say, all right, like, I get it. I understand your needs. I'm accommodating to your needs and let's let's do it. So those are the different ways yeah. to handle conflict. Work. And of course, compromising is, okay, you want a house. I want a baby. 
we will get a house if we get if we can also get a baby <laughs> you know what i mean like all right i'll buy you a house you know let, let's go get a house and then in addition to that i say okay well if that's what you get then i get this and she says okay you get a house and we can have another baby and i say all right great that's compromise both of us getting what we want or maybe we could say this and you know compromise might be hey listen eight hundred thousand dollar house doesn't work but um if if you would be okay with getting a four hundred thousand dollar house i would be fine with it so let's compromise that's another you know way to look at it negotiation plays into this people engage in, in give and take discussions and consider various alternatives to reach a joint decision that is acceptable to both parties it's okay to negotiate it's okay to say what you want i think this is important Integrative negotiation versus disruptive negotiation, two different ways to negotiate. Integrative is cooperative. Disruptive is adversarial. And both can be used at different times. If you really are adamant about what you want, maybe adversarial is the way to go. If you, you truly do want a cohesive, somewhat accommodating outcome, then integration might be a better way to negotiate. And that's a little bit more cooperative. Rules for reach, reaching a win-win separate from the people or the problem. Focus on underlying interests, not current demands. Demands create yes or no obstacles to effective negotiation. Listen and ask questions. Insist that results be based on objective standards. Okay, there's, there was a lot there. And I think that it's important to understand the nature of teams and why teams, I'll just kind of quickly summarize to run it back, that functional teams are what they are. What we talked about in this chapter is not functional teams. We talked about task force teams, agile teams forming teams with a common goal that are a little bit more dynamic that need to be a form in order to meet organizational objectives. We talked about designing teams, the size of them, the roles. And then we talked about launching teams, giving them a compelling mission, all this kind of stuff. And then we talked about ways to make teams cohesive, help them come together and be good at supporting one another and then certain roles that managers can play with that and then we talked about the, the downsides of cohesive teams we talked about group thing. and then obviously that played into what we decided is conflict which is good having a moderate level of conflict within a team is a good thing and then we talked about ways to manage conflict and after that you know that's that's pretty much it and hopefully you can see the value in that for leaders you know, I did kind of just want to encourage you in, in your learning, your pursuit of knowledge in the subject matter of leadership. I think that, you know, leadership is very broad, but in understanding human behavior, I think would be a good one. But also in leading, I don't say leading, but in taking initiative amongst your friends and amongst your sports teams or in whatever situation that you think is applicable, I encourage you to try to formulate some level of influence. You notice how I'm trying to leave out the word leadership. Just know that you have it. Know that you have a propensity to do it already just naturally. And that the more you think about it and the more you study and the more you, lead, you learn about leadership, the more you'll be able to use it for, for good. And so I just encourage you to apply this kind of stuff in, in your life and in your family and in, in your social circle.